This is an ABC podcast. Hi, from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone on RN and a program for anyone who's interested in this great 20th century thinker. Pragmatists regard the Platonist attempt to get away from time into eternity or get away from conversation into certainty as a product of an age of human history where life on Earth was so desperate and it seemed so unlikely that life could ever be better that people took refuge in another world. Mm-hmm. In the Platonist and theistic epoch, uh, the point of philosophy was to get you out of this mess into a better place. The realm of Platonic ideas, the contemplative life, something like that. And the reaction against this Greek-Christian pursuit of blessedness through union with a natural order is to say there isn't any natural order, but there is the possibility of a better life for our great-great-great-grandchildren. That's enough to give you you know, all the meaning or inspiration or whatever that you could use. Richard Rorty, the American pragmatist who died in 2007 and whose work is still highly relevant to understanding many of the political and social messes we find ourselves in today. As it happens, this year marks two Rorty anniversaries. It's 40 years since the publication of his Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, and 30 years since the publication of Contingency, Irony and Solidarity, arguably Richard Rorty's two most influential works. Rorty was a philosopher of fascinating tensions. He was a secularist who believed in transcendence and redemption of a certain kind, and a political realist who was quite comfortable talking about the prospect of utopia. Well, helping us untangle some of these threads today is Tracy Lanera, Assistant Research Professor in Philosophy at the University of Connecticut, and Nicholas Smith, who's Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. The thing about Richard Rorty that even his critics will admit is that he's a really great read. His work has a rhetorical elegance and clarity of expression that's usually thought of as the hallmark of the best analytic philosophers. Although, as we're about to hear, he certainly wasn't one of those. In fact, analytic philosophy comes in for some very focused and sustained criticism in his work. He thinks that analytical philosophers see themselves as having a particular place in the community of inquirers. And it's a place which has a particular importance. But there's also something about what philosophers see themselves as being experts in that riles Rorty a little bit. And I would just say a little bit about that. So the average inquirer at a university goes about trying to increase knowledge in their particular area, finding truths which are relevant for particular investigation, um, making claims about various things, and all inquirers of all sorts do that. But the philosopher asks, what is the difference between genuine knowledge genuine knowledge claims and mere opinions. Okay, people pursue truths, but what is truth? What is the distinction between truth and illusion? And if you ask those questions, you can seem as if there is a special expertise in answering them. And so philosophy equips itself with what Rorty calls super concepts and super distinctions. Super concepts like truth with a capital T, as distinct from appearance or opinion, and reality with a capital R, as distinct from appearance, and so on. So we have this apparent expertise 
in these super concepts. And it's the conceit <laughs> um, of having that kind of knowledge, a knowledge which all other inquirers ought to have but don't have the specialization in that Rorty thinks is a conceit. There are other aspects to it, really. So this expertise also requires a certain kind of um, braininess. If you're an analytical philosopher, you have to have mastered logic, philosophical logic. You need to be able to formalize arguments and so on. There's a certain um, caliber of intellect that you need in order to acquire this expertise. And then you can see yourself as having a special position in the community, like to, to seek out and slay the bullshitters and the fraudsters that are out there in the academy. So the, the analytical philosophers come to see themselves as, uh, well, Rossi's expression is a core d'elite. You might say now the unsullied of the, of the academic community uh, who have this role of um, making sure everything is on the right plane. Given this sort of criticism that Rorty has of analytic philosophy and the pretensions of analytic philosophers, what kind of philosophy does Rorty see as being uh, useful, if you like, and, and how do we gauge its usefulness? So that's a great question. And Rorty isn't always consistent in answering it, but he generally nominates two outstanding candidates. The first one is the promotion of human happiness. So he thinks any philosophy that equips human beings uh, with a better sense of how they can better enjoy their respective versions of a good, meaningful life. That's a useful philosophy. Um, also, any kind of philosophy that is geared towards a promotion of democracy. The goal here is the creation of a free, classless, casteless, and cosmopolitan society, which in his works he calls a liberal utopia. So these are obviously socio-political goals, which many philosophers, especially those who do high-level abstract theorizing, find irrelevant to what they do. But Rorty thinks that the kind of theory we do matters. So in one of his essays, he says that the more philosophy interacts with other human activities, not just natural science, but art, literature, religion, and politics, the more relevant it is the more useful. So in short, he doesn't say we shouldn't do abstract philosophical theory. But the deal is, if you do it, you need to get off your high horse. Your philosophy is not more important or more admirable or more awe-inspiring than moral and political projects. Okay, so we're going to be talking about what you've called the ambition to transcendence in Rorty's work, and that's a um, that's a phrase we'll come back to. But the, the notion, first of all, that Rorty might harbour such an ambition is surprising because he's actually very suspicious of transcendence. So before we get to talking about his own ambitions in that direction, can you outline his case against transcendence in philosophy? Well, for a start, he thinks that there have been many attempts to justify the ambition to transcendence which has driven traditional philosophy. So attempts to justify the distinction between truth and illusion or reality and appearance and so on, and those attempts have failed. So that's part of the problem. Another problem is that these traditional distinctions don't help us to um, deal with contemporary problems, political problems, which are generated by pluralism and by the aspirations of many people, democratic aspirations of many people. And thirdly, they're not conducive to um, preparation, if you like, for living in a liberal utopia, where there will be this radical legalitarian 
democratic form of life where people are happy, people are rich, um, but there are also no no distinct, literal no distinctions of rank. So no, it's a classless and casteless society, which he thinks we should be working towards. And just to narrow this down a bit further, I mean, am I right in, in thinking that for Rorty, philosophy's most problematic assumption is that there is a distinction between the world and and how we view the world. And so the goal of philosophy is to arrive at a sort of God's eye view of the world. That's the ambition to transcendence in a sense. And it's something that's very platonic, but also very Christian. Am I right in sensing that flavour to it? Yeah, they're absolutely correct. Um, And he thinks that this idea of transcendence, we could call it that way. Um, It's mutated a lot in the history of philosophy, but his real problem with it is that it prevents us from developing a culture where we can explicitly recognize that all we have is each other and that we are accountable to our fellow human beings and not some divine God or some moral absolute, which are generally expressions of this transcendent of this truth with a capital T. Um, And a culture like that, a culture of transcendence, downgrades the notion that ordinary human happiness, for example, is a worthy goal, that that's enough for us to aim at to have a meaningful, happy life. We don't have to please a divine God or to adopt a Kantian moral imperative in order to live a meaningful life. It's also quite inimical or is in tension with democracy, which is a culture where we should be just answerable to each other. And we see this at work, especially in religious debates in the public sphere, where the argument um, related to transcendence is always being brought up. So there are many lines of justification, for example, why people would oppose same-sex marriage or abortion. And most of the time, it's the religious reasoning, the transcendental reasoning, the sort that goes, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or the unborn is God's gift, even in cases of rape. That's treated as non-negotiable because it's divine injunction, because it's the moral law. And then the conversation stops there. And that is problematic for Rorty, because what makes the transcendent God theoretically happy is making other human beings suffer. So Rorty thinks we need to get rid of that responsibility to something higher, to something transcendent. We only need to be answerable to each other. Really, it boils down to a way of thinking about the human predicament, I suppose, which is centered around a divine being, an authority to which human beings are accountable in their practices. And that framework comes with a number of distinctions, the super distinctions that I've mentioned before, but also with a way of understanding the human. So distinctions like the other world and this world, the immortal and the mortal, the infinite and the finite pure and the impure and and so on. And of course, there is a value distinction in each of those pairs, one side of which becomes the aspiration point, if you like, for human life. So Rorty's pragmatism is a way of thinking about the human situation without using those distinctions. So these are concepts then that smuggle something that looks like religion in via the back door. So if you talk about reality with a capital R or morality with a capital M, that you're introducing concepts that work like theological concepts. Correct, exactly. Yeah. So the super concepts, if you like. Mm. Yeah. And Rorty doesn't see this as something unnatural. I mean, he thinks that 
human beings are generally moved to be in touch with something that's better or greater than themselves. It has a redemptive function. It allows us to make sense of an order in our lives. And in Rorty's work, he calls this a yearning for redemption. Um, and it could be brought about by many things. The sense of the futility of life, our ignorance about how the world works, our inclination to sin, our contingency and our frailty, our smallness in the universe. So the reasons for these impulses, Rorty thinks that both religion and philosophy are actually ways of responding to the vulnerability of the human condition. So he doesn't deny the validity of the impulses. It's just that the impulse to transcendence with a capital T was just the wrong move. The way we try to put the position that Rorty wants to reach is this, that um, he thinks it's important to level the hierarchies in our thinking and practice in an egalitarian manner. This is an important part of pragmatism. It's a democratic philosophy. But he is also sensitive to the charge that can be made about the leveling egalitarian democratic ethos, which is that it is um, spiritually deadening or flattening. It doesn't leave room for the genius, for the outstanding figure, for excellence. You know, these are these are cliches really, but the Rorty is alert to to that kind of criticism of the democratic project, including pragmatism as the philosophy of that. So he wants to reassure us, if you like, that being a pragmatist, being a radical democrat, doesn't mean that you're a flattener, doesn't entail that you're committed to some kind of spiritual um, leveling off or a spiritual, um, a flattened spiritual horizon or cultural horizon. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, with me, David Rutledge, and my guests this week are Nicholas Smith from Macquarie University in Sydney and Tracy Lanera from the University of Connecticut. And we're exploring some curious interplay between secular and spiritual impulses in the work of American philosopher Richard Rorty. Rorty didn't have a lot of time for the sort of quasi-theological notion that posits ultimate truth as something spinning out there in the ether beyond the world of appearances. He was very much a political thinker, a philosopher of the here and now. And yet there's a strong theme of transcendence in his work, something we'd more expect to find in theology than in pragmatist philosophy. But Rorty's a special kind of secularist. What we need is a way of retaining the impulse of all at something larger than the self, something greater than the self. Rorty doesn't think there's anything wrong with that. What he thinks there's something wrong with is submission um, to the authority of this greater thing, of this thing that's other than human. And that authoritarian articulation of that impulse, that's incompatible with the democratic move. So what we need is ways of satisfying that impulse of awe, which, if you like, takes the self outwards, widens the self, enlarges the self, without raising the self up to some kind of proximity to God or higher up the hierarchy of being. So the challenge then is to imagine ourselves as being transformed in a way such that we can feel religious-type feelings, you know, have religious-type feelings, not just all, but also, Tracy mentioned redemption, maybe we can get onto this, this is a really important idea, that our imperfections can be redeemed in a secular way. 
And in Rorty's work in particular, we find um, two particular ideals that um, represent this feature of self-enlargement. And those are the ideals of self-creation and solidarity. So those are the two methods or two strategies by which this self-enlarging tendency can come alive in Rorty's ideal society. It seems, though, that this idea of self-enlargement through solidarity with others, that's something that we're seeing at the moment in a lot of pernicious social contexts. We see it in various forms of nationalism and ethnic chauvinism and the nastier corners of the internet. How are these different from what Rorty is getting at? Those examples are versions of solidarity that are limiting or self-enclosing. They're designed to keep people out. So most of these groups, um, racist groups, um, sexist groups, they think they're higher or more superior than other people, or they think that other people don't matter as long as the people who are like us are protected or valued. And that's not the kind of solidarity that Rorty's after. He's concerned with expanding our scope of solidarity, of accommodating people who are not like us, and learning to treat them as part of our shared community, of being who we refer to when we say, we the people. So it's a continually expanding self um, sense of solidarity rather than a, an enclosing one. I do think that Rorty's in a little bit of a bind here and he realises it because on the one hand, in the remote mm. future, in the in the distant future, we have a hope. We have a hope directed towards this global cosmopolitan, um, wealthy, classless and casteless society. And part of the task of philosophy is to um, tell stories of how we might move from the to the, sorry, from here. On the other hand, though, we live in the here and now, and the associations that people have, the solidarities or loyalties that people have, fall far short of that. So he's in a bind because he wants to acknowledge the need for such solidarity and the good that such solidarity can bring, and to draw on that impulse, to transform that impulse. He needs to do that with the material that we've got now. So that's the bind, and, and the, there are, in some of his writings on politics, especially around America, he wrote a book called Achieving Our Country, he was very concerned to boost American patriotism. Um, and he was criticised for this. He was criticised for obvious reasons, given the world power that America is and its, its recent history. Yeah, I think he wrote it in, yeah, he published it in 1998 or 1999. That's the weird thing about it. Um, he was saying that a lot of the democratic achievements of the United States are fragile and could collapse. But at the same time, that was the point where when the United States was actually at the peak, it was unimag unimaginable that it was not the greatest country in the world. And then 9-11 happened and Worthy was proven right. So... How does one nurture and develop solidarity, according to Rorty? Well, the simple answer to that in most of Rorty's work is that you read more. You read more novels, um, you might watch more films. Bit by bit, you will widen your horizon of sympathies. So that's the simple answer. But he also thinks that engagements in cooperative projects 
being involved in politics, um, democratic politics, getting into the habit of that kind of activity is another way of doing it. This is a, something that philosophy can help you do. <laughs> That's the way it can. You think of your philosophy as cultural politics, as he says. You could say, though, that there's a, a tension or a potential tension between solidarity and this idea of self-creation. How does Rorty deal with that tension? Okay, so this is another complex issue. Um, in his earlier writings, he did argue that self-creation belongs to the domain of the private sphere and solidarity is a public goal. So you can do whatever you like in private as long as your actions don't interfere with the projects of others. But in public, you have to work with others to build a community of mutual respect, cooperation, even love. And the tensions in this position are quite obvious. Feminists have made it clear that what happens in the home can have social ramifications. In separating self-creation and solidarity, Rorty seems to endorse a schizophrenic character, a self-creating loner inside the house and an extrovert in the community park. <laughs> yes, so, exactly, yeah. yeah. So Rorty himself, in the end, has admitted that wasn't his goal at all. So what we do in the article is that we point out that Rorty actually has an enemy. And the enemy here is the egotist. So the egotist would be the individual, the mutation, if you like, of the person who worships the transcendent. So the egotist believes that they are so self-sufficient, so complete, that the views and the interests of others don't matter. And I'm sure you, David, and a lot of the people who listen to the podcast know people who are like this. Um, <laughs> One or two. <laughs> exactly. Um, so in our article, Nick and I propose that we should read the values of self-creation and solidarity as turning this egotistic impulse against itself. So self-creation is about encountering new selves, about encountering new experiences and places. So Rorty thinks that conceptions such as self-discovery or being true to yourself, those are misguided ideas because that assumes that you already have an authentic core self and your job is to find out who you really are and then you'll be at peace with your existence. You'll be complete. But we don't live our lives like that according to Rorty. We don't self-create in isolation. For Rorty, our lives are projects. We are always indebted to the people we meet, the places we visit, or the books we read. There's always a chance that the next person you talk to or the next film you watch can transform who you are. And it is our interaction with others and with the world that allows us to form our life narrative. And that's what self-creation is. So for Rorty, self-creation is self-enlarging. It's not a self-enclosing process. And you're more successful if you expand your conception of who you are rather than when you remain rigid and egotistic. And solidarity, in a way, is built the same way. It's through your engagement with others that you create a sense of a bigger community. That's the feature that ties self-creation and solidarity together. Rorty writes about the ways in which we can project a sense of awe and mystery into the future, right? A time when human society will be vastly superior to today's society in ways that we can scarcely imagine. It makes me wonder about his optimism and his belief in social progress, because one thing that philosophical pragmatism seems to demand of us is that we should keep our expectations 
<laughs> relatively low. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, looking at human history, it, it's really possible to believe in human moral progress without resorting to some sort of transcendent hope, transcendent in, in the vertical sense. Like, you know, someone someone or something is going to save us from ourselves because we can't seem to manage it. And, you know, Rorty's language when he writes about the liberal utopia does take on this sort of religious tone, I sometimes feel. Yeah, I agree, David, that's right. So there's two tracks, if you like, to his thinking on this. One is the utopian one, where the idea is radical redescription of what society is and to what it could become, and weaving narratives of how it's possible that we could tell the story of how we got there from here. So he's written a number of essays of that kind, but there's also the meliorist um, angle to Rorty's pragmatism, which is what we typically associate with pragmatism. So um, the pragmatic, you know, you're doing things which are actually useful here and now, not worrying too much about the distant future, about being too concerned by rigid principles. So you be pragmatic. So this is a, if you like the, the meliorist pragmatist element. So Rorty is trying to do those two things. This is the, if you like, the paradox of of pragmatist transcendence. Yeah. And he uses other expressions which are also paradoxical. So the liberal ironist is another expression he uses which is paradoxical. Romantic utilitarian. <laughs> yes. he, once, he once describes, well, he takes up the term romantic utilitarianism which was used as a criticism of pragmatism originally, but he embraces it. There's something paradoxical about it, but it is, yeah. It works. That's so initially you think it's inconsistent because how could you be utopian and how could you be a cautious pragmatist at the same time? But Rorty, we must remember, is also a philosopher of contingency. Sometimes you just never know how things would turn out. I mean, even politically, I don't think Rorty would have been so surprised about how things have turned out in the United States, for instance. So, as mentioned previously in Achieving Our Country in 1999, he predicted the rise of a Trump figure, someone who will mobilize the dissatisfactions of an alienated white working class and racism would make a comeback. And he recognizes that because although to some extent the United States represents a country that has so many democratic achievements, those achievements are also very fragile and they could easily be wiped out in the face of crisis situations. So liberal values such as mutual respect, tolerance and social cooperation, um, those things are to some extent ideals he would want in a utopia as well. But when bad things happen, they're hard to live up to. So in Rorty's philosophy... We always have to keep pulling ourselves together to make sure our achievements are kept alive. As you say, he did predict the rise of a Trump figure and he did predict the, the rise of these, these uh, noxious social phenomena that we see in America today. But did his predictions go further than that? Does he cast his imagination beyond what we're seeing in America at the moment? Well, I don't think he would be that surprised by it. I mean, in terms of the optimism or pessimism, yeah, this is maybe a... A point that's worth drawing attention to that the, I mean, he, he, he would be neither the optimist or pessimist insofar as he certainly doesn't think that the utopia is bound to happen um, or that you know, we live in the, the best possible world. He's not, he's not an optimist in that sense. But he, it's important to resist the pessimistic streak, if you like, um, and to keep the hope alive through philosophizing, through writing, through imagination, um, even though 
the reality is recalcitrant to that. And part of that is also to see the good in the system that we have um, and to try to protect that. So he, he was, Rutte is often criticised by the radical left. He was, he was critical of them too, so fair enough. Um, about the merits he would remind his readers of, of the, the contemporary liberal democratic societies, including the states. But as, as Tracy said before, he, always, he does see these as fragile achievements. Nicola Smith, Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney, and Tracy Lanera, Assistant Research Professor in Philosophy at the University of Connecticut, bringing us to the end of the Philosopher's Zone for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be putting some links and information on the website. If you're really keen, you can get along to the second meeting of the Richard Rorty Society at Penn State University in November. All the details will be there on the website. Or if you just want to stay put and listen to this program again, then that's also an option. You can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. Thank you for your company. See you next time.